Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. For the past 20-plus years, uh, Dr. Matthew Bunsen has been active in the area of Catholic social communications and education. Uh, he's the author of and co-author of more than 50 books, including the Encyclopedia of Catholic History. Uh, we have a Pope on Benedict XVI, also the Saints Encyclopedia, and he's had best-selling biographies of St. Damien of Molokai and St. Uh, Kateri Takakwatha. He uh, serves right now as the Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News, and uh, he's a frequent guest with me here on Crest in the Afternoon. I'm very appreciative of his time. Hi, Matthew. Good morning. It's uh, or good evening, I guess. <laughs> it's nice to be with you. I've lost. We all lose track of the days at a certain point at the Synod. <laughs> yeah. Uh, what is actually happening at this time at the Synod? Well, it's uh, about 11 p.m. here. Uh, so it's uh, hopefully they're they're done with their deliberations for the day. But it wouldn't surprise some of us uh, if they're not. And what I mean by that is that uh, we know that they are at work on trying to complete uh, the discussions and uh, organization of the 1,051 separate amendments that have been submitted for the final report that's supposed to be approved tomorrow wow. uh, by the participants. So who who gets the submit stuff? <laughs> All of the uh, participants okay. uh, who are in the, the Synod uh, bearing in mind that uh, they all have basically one vote. Uh, so, the, with with that much material flowing, how how do they organize it, and how do you, how do you come up with a vote? Oh, it looks like we may have dropped. Okay, uh, again, the trying to get a handle on on the mechanics of this has, has been a problem from the beginning, and. Uh, We've got, again, the Synod on Synodality was uh, the the lead uh, emphasis in a letter this Wednesday from the Holy See. Uh, I think a lot of us were surprised that they published this letter during the final days of the October gathering, um, but it was an invitation letter uh, inviting people to take an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church Again, I think it's fair to say, well, how? Uh, how? How do you, what What do you mean for us to do? I mean, this sounds good. How do we do it? Um, Matthew, you back with us? I, I'm here. Welcome I, to Rome. <laughs> <laughs> so what do people, you've got over a thousand of these, what are they, suggestions or challenges? or What do people vote are on? Are there amendments? There are amendments. Well, so... Yeah. So what we are uh, looking at is that uh, we this is the culmination of work throughout uh, this month, basically from the 4th of October uh, to just a few days ago when the final uh, discussions were held on the different points of what was called the Instrumentum Laboris, which was the blueprint for the Synod. And right. that included, as you and I have talked, mm -hmm. uh, various aspects of church life, uh, participation of uh, the laity. And this last week or so, the last 10 days almost, has been dedicated to authority and co-responsibility in the church. All of those interventions, all of the discussions at the round tables, the, what are called the Tricoli Minori, were gathered together uh, and presented uh, report by report 
uh, into what is supposed to be a draft synthesis that was presented to them on Wednesday. Uh, they then had the chance to look at it and uh, to express their opinions. And that is how we end up with basically a thousand okay. amendments okay. from the 37 or so different tables. Okay. All right. So they're going to have to synthesize those into the final document. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah. Uh, all of this then uh, falls to the, the work of a committee that I understand has added one or two extra staff people uh, to try to collate and gather everything together mm -hmm. uh, because those all then have to be uh, discussed and one way or another uh, brought into the final document yeah. in a way uh, that is satisfactory enough for the majority of the members, by which I mean two-thirds of the members, uh, to vote. So there will still be, a, there'll be a final vote then? The presumption is uh, that the final vote on this final document, so to speak, on this synthesis report uh, is supposed to be held sometime tomorrow. Okay. Um, now, a lot of that, uh, having covered, I think this is my fifth synod over the years, uh, safe to say this is the most different one that I've ever covered. Yeah. But typically, uh, the, the timeline for a lot of these approvals can vary from synod to synod. Uh, things were very orderly, for example, in 2012, uh, when I was here uh, for the Synod of the New Evangelization. It got much messier uh, in 2019 with the Amazonian Synod. Mm -hmm. uh, what was supposed to have been a, a document delivered in, in the late afternoon, I don't think it was released, if memory serves, until about 9 p.m., so it's everything varies, uh, and given the fact that you have 364 participants, all of them, again, with uh, different opinions and amendments and other things, uh, you can see how this may take some time. But yeah. I think the expectation is uh, that this will be approved, assuming it does get approved, uh, probably to early tomorrow evening. Okay. And then uh, this document goes to the Holy Father, and does he, are we expecting an apostolic exhortation? No, uh, we, <laughs> we have to brace ourselves, and, and you and I have talked about this, uh, for the fact that we are now uh, going to head into 11 months of preparation okay. coming out of this synod until the October 2024 synod, which is supposed to be the completion point uh, for all of the synod's work. So this is simply the end of the first half right. of the Synod. So we're not going to get a halftime report from the Holy Father? Oh, uh, I think we will. Okay. I, I think uh, there are several possibilities that could unfold. Uh, the, the first is, uh, and I think this is the one that's most likely, uh, the Holy Father will take the document. Uh, we are almost certain to see it uh, because there's no reason to keep it secret. Uh, and if it were, as we have seen, it's such a document is almost impossible to keep under lock and key, especially mm -hmm. since you have 364 participants who are yeah. supposed to go home and say, let's work off of this. Yeah. So the Holy Father, I think, will take this document and say, all right, let's get to work and we'll, we'll use this over the coming months. One other option is that uh, instead of having this used as the basis for further discussions, and then we start this whole cycle over again of another instrumental laboris, in other words, another working blueprint for next year, which we figure would come out in the spring, 
The Holy Father may do what he did in 2014. At the end, if you remember, Al, on the extraordinary synod on the family that he convoked basically to help prepare for the ordinary synod on the family. And I apologize to your listeners if this is seemingly in the weeds, but there's a point here that he used 14 and 15 synods in 2014 and 2015 to cover all of the ground that he wanted for the family. That, of course, led to the apostolic exhortation of Maurice Laetitia of some controversy. But he took the, that interim little report coming out of the 2014 Senate and made it the instrument in laboris, in other words, the blueprint for the next one. He may very well want to do that here. I see. Uh, because this is uh, presumably uh, a comprehensive gathering of all of the discussions and other things that have taken place over this last month. And I, he may decide that this is suitable uh, for what he wants to accomplish going forward okay. or Again, he may simply tell them, let's go to work like you usually do and proceed. One of the big questions, and I think this is something that uh, is worth discussing, there are a few question marks attached to it, is what exactly are the tasks going forward for the next year coming out of this all the way to October of 2024? Mm-hmm. And I have spoken to a number of bishops, a number of participants, and that's still, admittedly, a little hazy. We're supposed to have some additional clarity uh, probably tomorrow. Well, the win- this Wednesday letter that came out um, from the Holy yes. See, um, it, 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 first of all, I, I was surprised that it was published during the final days of the October gathering in Rome. But there's this invitation about taking an active role in the discernment and decision-making of the Church. So does this letter tell me how I can do that? Um, Not in any specifics. Uh, Now, I've I've looked at the letter uh, and to be honest, in a couple of different languages to make sure that I'm I'm appreciating exactly uh, what they're doing. Good. Typically, you're absolutely right. Uh, What the, the letter to the people of God is some kind of a statement that comes out of most synods. There was one, for example, uh, in 2018 uh, to youth from the synod. And it's a kind of exhortatory epistle Mm -hmm. uh, that summarizes, uh, without getting into the sort of industrial detail of the final document, but it's really supposed to be a reflection uh, and an appeal from those who have taken part in the synod. This one, in that sense, is, is very similar But uh, I would say that this one is different for a couple of reasons. The first is that they did not wait until the end of the synod to do this. They did it earlier in the week. Mm -hmm. It actually came out on the 25th. And this one also notes uh, that this is an unprecedented experience in terms of synods. Obviously, this is the first time that their lay people, uh, women especially, Mm -hmm. uh, have been invited to take part as full voting members, then it gets into some of the the themes. It's a snapshot of sorts of what they've been working on. And I found it, to be honest, uh, quite helpful just as a glimpse into the mindset of a lot of things that were taking place there. Uh, For example, the stress on on listening. Uh, We know that that's been the case, but this really stresses that. Mm -hmm. Uh, But then it also talks about what uh, the way that this final synthesis report is going to be organized. And uh, certainly given leaks and everything else, uh, we know that that's the case. 
where it talks about questions that have been discussed, areas of agreement, areas that are open to further discussion, and then certain action points or proposals heading out of this. And that's where I think some of the controversy may very well lie as, as we move forward. Yeah. Um, so what's the, what's the general attitude of the participants? Uh, you know, what are you hearing? Are people glad yeah. to be there? Uh, do they feel this is an exercise in futility? Are they? Do they think this is a possibility of great things to come? Yeah, um, a mixture of all of the above, as you can imagine, because you have 364 people literally from all over the globe. Mm-hmm. I've been especially curious uh, about the reaction and the opinions of the different bishops who have taken part in this thing. Uh, and they've been asked uh, at press briefings and elsewhere. And, and I know we can pick this up when we come back. Yeah, yeah. Right. hold it there. We'll come back and, and have you share what you're hearing, especially from you know particular bishops. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, our topic, the Synod on Synodality. Again, this week we received a letter published during the final days of this October gathering urging us to take an active role in discernment and decision-making. I'm Al Cresta. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen in Rome for the Synod on Synodality. Uh, We were talking before the break about uh, Matthew's uh, mixing with various participants there, including a number of bishops, and I was asking him to just give us an idea of what he's hearing, how people are assessing uh, the effort that they've made, the prospects for the future. uh, Go ahead, Matthew. Pick it up. Yeah, I think uh, one of the recurring themes has been that uh, there there were genuine apprehensions uh, heading into this, uh, as you well know. Yep. Uh, Not just apprehensions in some cases, but outright anxieties and and serious concerns about where this may go. Now, that does not mean that uh, those possible... Ooh, lost them again. Uh, I will mention, too, that uh, Ed Penton, uh, talking with Cardinal Mueller, uh, Cardinal Mueller, who's, again, an outstanding um, theologian, uh, says that the Synod on Synodality will be used by some to prepare the Church to accept false teaching. That's the headline uh, from the National Catholic Register from Ed's interview with uh, Cardinal Mueller. I will, uh, you know, I again, in the first century, John writes in his first letter, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world, and by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So even in the first century, during the apostolic era, uh, the children of God were called upon to discern. Uh, and I think it's 
perfectly legitimate uh, for uh, theologians of the stature of Cardinal Mueller to let us know that there are those in our midst who uh, are trying to redefine uh, the tradition. And here's, here's another thing to keep in mind, too, that you may not uh, always know, and that is that the tradition is dynamic. It's not static. So we saw, for instance, one big development uh, in the Catholic tradition has been the increased attention paid to the covenant of uh, that God made with Israel. St. Paul's teaching in Romans chapter 9 through 11, and then uh, Romans eleven twenty nine, saying that the gifts and calling of God are irre- irrevocable, that's led to a development, a legitimate development in the area of the church's understanding of the relationship between um, Israel and the church. So it, discernment is always important. Uh, tradition is not static. It is dynamic. And so we shouldn't be surprised that sometimes things are going to be, questions are going to be uh, brought up. Uh, but again, our confidence is in uh, the head of the church, uh, and that is Christ himself. Matthew, uh, go ahead. We got cut off, unfortunately, there. Yeah, sorry. Again, uh, sometimes the Internet here has a, a few issues. Yeah. Um, so I was, I was saying that uh, there have been some genuine concerns uh, coming in, uh, and I think some still have those concerns. We'll see how this final document uh, turns out. But one of the things that uh, a number of bishops have said, including Archbishop Anthony Fisher, for example, of Sydney, who was um, part of our coverage of the Synod, yeah. um, made the point that uh, he found it really quite remarkable to be in this room with so many people from all over the world. And the way that it was set up of discussion, of conversation, followed by prayer and reflection was actually a, a very positive experience for him. Good. And uh, from that standpoint, uh, I think a number of bishops have said similar things. I know that uh, Archbishop Rolio at his press conference said something similar, that he's president of the USCCB and the, the Archbishop of the Military Archdiocese, former papal diplomat, so he's, he's obviously very diplomatic, but I think one of the things he said is that uh, it is this opportunity to listen to each other. So it became, I think, uh, a welcome departure for a lot of people from the kind of bitter polarization that yeah. we often see in the church. That does not mean, however, that there weren't some pretty strong disagreements, uh, especially at, when they got to the stage, uh, I think you and I talked about a week ago or so, uh, where they're put together in these tables based on different themes, uh, focusing, for example, on LGBTQ questions mm-hmm. and, and the ordination of women questions, that sort of thing. Uh, that's where real disagreements emerged. Okay. Some bishops expressed some unhappiness with the fact uh, that they were given only three minutes. I think Cardinal Gerhard Mueller referenced that in uh, his interview that you were just talking about with Edward Penton. Yes. Uh, that here he was, the former head of the congregation for <laughs> yeah, the doctrine yeah, of the faith right. given one intervention for three minutes in, in the space of a month yeah yeah <laughs> no that, I, I can understand that um in the the interview he did with uh, edward penton um he did raise questions of saying that there were those who are uh 
there are certain factions or individuals who are using the synod on synodality to prepare the church to accept false teaching. Did he give any hint on how serious a threat that was? Well, I I think uh, he speaks for a lot of bishops who saw what were his concern about manipulation of the process uh, that, again, not being able to be heard. Uh, One thing that we can note uh, with some certainty, uh, Archbishop Fisher spoke about this. Uh, We had a remarkable Australian theologian uh, by the name of Rene Kula-Ryan, who was also on our coverage uh, and who gave uh, a great press conference uh, that you and I covered that last week, mm-hmm. uh, talking about just the issue of women's ordination, yeah. uh, that there that was, in fact, uh, a topic at this synod. And there were interventions about it. There were discussions about it. Now, that becomes even more interesting, uh, given subsequent developments sort of outside the synod hall. The first came from Cardinal Robert Prevost, who's the American and new head of the the Dicastery for Bishops, who at the press briefing just a couple of days ago, when asked predictably uh, about women's ordination, because in the Sala Stampa, that is one of the most asked questions, uh, especially from uh, more progressive members of the media. Mm -hmm. Uh, And his answer was, well, you really can't change apostolic tradition and he said not to mention the fact that clericalizing women under that situation would probably create more problems than it would ever solve then we have the release of uh in in the italian language of a book that came out in june uh it's an interview book with pope francis and the italian version was released just a few days ago and in it uh it's very clear that pope francis has no interest uh, in doing anything uh, with the ordination of women to the priesthood. In fact, he, he stresses again that essentially that is a closed issue. And he makes uh, pretty clear that he is not a big fan of the ordination of women to some, or the creation of some sort of a female diaconate. Even the diaconate, so, yeah. Well, I mean, think about so that. Those are, those are indicators. I mean, think about that. I mean, that issue has now been addressed by uh, St. Pope Paul the Sixth. It's been addressed by Pope Saint John the twenty, John Paul the twenty third. It's uh, I'm I'm sure it must have been addressed at one time by Benedict, although I don't recall the occasion. And now it's been ad- addressed directly by Pope Francis. You would think right. at some point um, people would get the message that this is a closed issue, and if you're concerned about uh, female participation in the church get to work on other areas where female participation uh, maybe has been ignored, right? I mean, why, well, why, that's is, right. why is the ordination of women, why is that thought to be a solving of a problem of uh, female marginalization? I mean, it, it doesn't, um, if, if you think there are females have a marginal influence in the church, then go to those places where they can participate and expand and magnify their influence. But this this is right. a dead well, end. The, 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 the question of the female diaconate, too, uh, has come up. Now, what they mean by a female diaconate is, is one of two things. There is this idea of ordination right. uh, that would be, of course, a pathway to holy orders that 
many theologians even here at the synod have said that that's simply not possible yeah then there's this supposed uh recreation is one of the phrases that they use or, or restoration is another phrase that they use of some sort of a, a diaconate from the early church deaconesses in the early church that is obviously a controverted issue mm-hmm. that has been studied by two different commissions under pope francis and there is an old uh, line and pope francis even joked about it at one point that if you really want to uh, delay something or not have to deal with it anymore. Just form a commission to study it. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So he's had two now uh, on this topic, and it, it's distinctly possible there might be a third at some point. Yeah. But we're no closer to any sort of a resolution other than uh, the Holy Father himself stating that it's unlikely that this is going to go anywhere. But they are very persistent because this is part of this laundry list of changes that they're demanding. Yeah. Now, there's been no groundswell uh, within the Senate Hall based on reporting and, and what some have said. Some massive call from all the women, 54 women members there. Uh, I think quite the opposite. There has been a, a vociferous opposition to the idea of the ordination of women to yeah. the priesthood yeah. and, and opposition to the, uh, some sort of a female deaconesses okay okay um let me uh probably have to take a break first but i i want to get the question out and that is uh has there been any direct um assessment of calls for some sort of blessing for same-sex couples yeah we know that uh at the different tables uh, the discussion has emerged. Uh, it was discussed. Uh, we know that there were themes that were given. Mm-hmm. And a lot of the, the members were asked to fill out forms of what was most interesting to them. And those that expressed this topic were put together. That raised some eyebrows. And we can pick this up, I know. Yeah. Hold it there, Matthew. We'll take the break. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen in Rome at the Synod on Synodality. We're doing our best to assess uh, what's going on. At this. It's wrapping up, and uh, really it's halftime. There'll be another gathering next October. And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We are taking, uh, our evaluating, uh, looking at the, the Synod on Synodality and what we've learned from those who are participating in it. And uh, there's been a, some outstanding reporting uh, from the National Catholic Register and EWTN News. Uh, we were talking earlier about the those who were attempting that that those who had concerns about LGBTQ issues were all put together yeah. at the same table. Uh, was that done with any other topic? Oh, yeah. Uh, there were apparently discussions about things like migration, uh, ecology. This okay. is uh, the, the Pope who authored Laudato Si, so sure. I, I don't think that's unlikely, uh, as well as uh, the women in the church. Uh, so, yeah, there were a lot of different perspectives. And, and one of the uh, realities of this, and this was commented on by a, a few of the participants in some of the press briefings, that it, it seemed as though 
the only thing anyone wanted to talk about uh, at the Synod uh, were the hot-button issues of things like LGBTQ and, and same-sex blessings and the ordination of women, because that was just, it seemed at times, uh, and sitting in the briefing room, I, I can sympathize, it seemed as though that was the only thing they were ever being asked. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What what doctrines of the church are you planning to change? Yeah. Uh, when, in fact, there, it was a, a very wide discussion. Uh, and the perspectives were heard from people literally from all over the globe. And I think that was one of the things that uh, was accomplished. I made an observation on some of our TV coverage uh, that what did make this very significantly novel was that in previous synods where there was no lay participation, bishops from all over the world, and this is by design to the synod of bishops, so there's no criticism of it, right. uh, brought with them the perspectives of their faithful. Ultimately, uh, as detailed as those might be, those are secondhand reports. For the first time, uh, the synod was able to hear directly from uh, men and women from all over the world with their own lived experiences. Yeah. And I think from that standpoint, uh, for a global church that wants to listen, as Pope Francis has asked, mm-hmm. uh, this was something of a, of a remarkable opportunity yeah. for many of them. Yeah. No, I, I've this idea of hearing from the laity is not is not a problem for me. Um, right. You know, I think <laughs> yes. I think bottom up communication is necessary, um, but it's not <laughs> Cardinal Mueller. I can understand Cardinal Mueller's frustration, <laughs> yes. you know, where he, who has served as a prefect of the Dicastery for, for the Doctrine of the Faith, is given three minutes, and that the same three minutes is given to, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, Ugandan layman who, <laughs> who's not been to seminary, and, you know, well, sure, I do want to hear from you. But if you're talking about theological issues, I think I'm going to side with the the cardinal here. Uh, <laughs> yes, you know. Well, and he made the observation in his interview with uh, Edward Penton. Uh, you can find the ncregister.com if, if you're looking to read this, and, and I encourage you to do so, along with a couple of other articles that I want to mention before we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he did say that uh, one of the frustrations that he had, uh, and I'm sure that this is exactly the same uh, for many, many bishops, and even uh, fully trained lay people who were there, that they were hearing a lot from very emotional appeals and things from people who have not just the, a, a, a lack of direct academic theological formation, not in any way to sound snobbish, but I mean that they're not theologians, commenting in many cases on fairly complicated theological right. topics. But then Cardinal Mueller also noted that some of the presentations they were they felt as though they were being talked to like children. Right. And right. these are cardinals, these are remarkable bishops and archbishops from around the world, and some very, very uh, superbly trained lay people. Yeah. So it, it, one of the challenges you have with something like this is that you can't talk to everyone. Right. Uh, and some are going to feel either insulted or you're risking in, in other ways uh, having conversations that just go way over the head of a lot of the participants. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I was reading the interview with Cardinal Mueller, and it's uh, there, there are a lot of sad stories out there. Um, you know, people who were hurt because of somebody's attitude about uh, you know uh, homosexuality. Um, mm-hmm. th- th- that 
certainly you acknowledge the tragedy in some of these stories, but it doesn't have any immediate bearing on church teaching. Um, you know, that some young man committed suicide uh, because, I'm not even sure what the circumstances are, but even even if it were uh, somebody uh, within the church uh, was insensitive or, uh, you know, put this person down, everybody I know would find that to be tragic. But it doesn't it doesn't mean that somehow we change try to change the moral law when it comes to same sex um, acts. It, it's just not going right. to happen. I and I think that's that, that it, you get this. I've been in situations too where you begin to feel patronized um, from people who have these terrible stories to tell as though you've never heard them before. Do I think that Cardinal Mueller never heard such stories? No, I think he's heard plenty of stories like this through his ministry over the years. So, yeah. yeah. Well, and one of the uh, other things that uh, I think Cardinal Mueller has expressed concerns about that uh, a number of individuals have uh, going in, and, and you and I actually talked about this i think a couple of months ago as we were looking at this instrumentum laboris mm-hmm. or the, again this blueprint for the senate is this third module this this third week and that it was focused on authority and co-responsibility in the church and we heard uh, a number of theologians uh, including ormond rush uh, from australia uh father dario vitale these are obscure names i know to a lot of people but within academic theology uh, they are well known uh, for being adherents to a very different conception of hierarchy the census fidelium the census fidei the relationship of all of that to the magisterium apostolic tradition structures in the life of the church so it, it is fascinating on the one hand that we're seeing the collision of these two visions of the Second Vatican Council. It simply doesn't want to go away uh, because you have so many theologians who have this idea of a hermeneutic of rupture who yeah. see this in, in almost a 1970s way yeah. of theology. And then those who are adherents of what I think has been the really successful project that began especially with john paul ii of an interpretation of the, of the council of continuity and reform right, right. and it, that has all played out uh, this week in the synod and i think this is going to be something we're going to be unpacking for a while because we have to given the potential influence it's going to have in the next year yeah well uh, uh, good i mean i, I i'm all for, at you know there was a time a few years ago well about 10 years ago now where I thought that uh, those old 1970s concerns were dying out. Um, but under this pontificate, uh, people have been invited back in um, and, you know, to revive uh, some of these discussions. And I, my hope for the Synod is that bringing these people together face-to-face, uh, that the hermeneutic of continuity is going to prove itself to be vastly more fruitful and uh, uh, moving towards authentic reform than the hermeneutic of rupture, which, in my own opinion, yeah. uh, leaves us with a church that is separated from its 2,000-year history. So, 
That's right. And, and we're looking at uh, interpretations of authority in the life of the church uh, that really go back to a number of, of theologians, uh, to, to borrow your thing, that, that we thought were of, of a different time. Uh, I think of Edward Skillabeats, for example, yeah. and, and his vision for the church. I think also of someone like Carlo Cardinal Martini, yep. uh, who had this grand vision uh, of a church that is in permanent synodal status, yes. that he wanted a permanent synod. Now, one of the proposals, apparently, that has been floated, and we'll see if it survives the amendment process, is this notion of a permanent synod that would replace the Synod of Bishops. Now, for what it's worth, if you go to the Vatican website, the official Vatican website, and you look at the pages for the Synod of Bishops, it says very clearly, the Synod, and then in parentheses, formerly the Synod of Bishops. And if you look at some of the official documents, I think especially of a very technical book called the Annuario Pontificio, which is like the, the Vatican's annual book of pretty much everything you'd want to know about the Holy See mm -hmm. in one fat little red book, it's dispensed with the idea of the Synodius Episcoporum, in other words, the Synod of Bishops. It now simply says the Secretariat of the Synod. So something is already in the mind of the organizers hmm. that coming going forward, this is going to be potentially at least a very different structure but all of the bureaucracy and I think all of the theology hasn't caught up with those changes yet. Mm -hmm. And that, I think, is going to be very significant and something that we're going to need to watch in the coming months and, and even the coming years. Matthew, uh, do we have time? Yes, I think we've got about three minutes. And I promised yeah. people that we'd talk about uh, these changes in Nicaragua. And I want to make sure I get those out there where you've got Daniel Ortega's regime now canceling the legal status and registration of 25 institutions, including that of the Franciscan Friars Minor and several other Christian groups. Um, apparently, he's going to also uh, take over their assets. Well, that's right. Uh, nothing surprises us now uh, in terms of the Ortega regime. And I think we have to brace ourselves for the fact uh, that these arrests are going to continue and the violence is going to continue. But the seizure, I think, is another way uh, that they're using uh, of assets and other things uh, as a way of impoverishing the yeah. church. But we've also seen as well various NGOs and, and others, I think the Franciscan Friar of Minor uh, and others. Um, and it's escaping the notice of a lot of people in media understandably we have now that the situation of the horrendous situation in the middle east we've had the ongoing war in ukraine so there's a lot happening yeah. but it's the idea of religious and academic freedom uh, that is under assault there uh, and there's always a concern that this is the type of thinking that could spread to other parts of the world but ortega has a particular venom uh, toward the catholic church because it is now really the only institution left in Nicaragua uh, that is standing up to yeah. uh, the Ortega regime, and it therefore must be crushed. Uh, let's end on a good note. Talk to me about the 35 Catholic martyrs of Kandamal. I don't know this particular name in India on the road to sainthood. Church in India has welcomed the news that the Vatican will initiate the beatification process for 35 Catholic martyrs. 
I guess we lost. I guess we lost Matthew at the last minute here. Well, let me let me just uh, again on October twenty first, twenty first, the Catholic Church in India made public uh, a note from the Vatican to Castri for the causes of saints to initiate the processes processes of beatification for the servant of God, Confessor Eagle and companions. Uh, we will spend some time next week on this uh, wonderful story. Uh, it also lets us know that sometimes, right, when Christ calls you, he bids you come and die. I'm Al Cresta.